Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. It's that time of the week again where Alex and I sit down and beam directly into your brains with another episode of the A Winner Is You podcast. For new listeners, we are your friendly neighbourhood video game book club podcast and I feel like I say this every week, but we have a very special episode for you as we round out our second annual Summer of Resi. That's right, folks. This week we are coming to you to discuss all things OG Resident Evil all the way back in 1996. Before we do all that, it's time for the usual introductions before we begin, so you can match the voice to a name. My name is David, and with me as ever is AWIY co-member, Mr. Alex Aldridge. How are you doing today, Alex? Other than your toilet escapades, which I've been hearing all about. Oh, well, I'm good. I'm good. Fresh off the back of AEW All In. Nearly said AWIY All In. That would be uh, quite the event. Uh, no, AEW All In at Wembley Stadium. I'm fresh. So I asked you earlier this week to give me the old man non-smart rundown of what this is and you said the closest equivalent is perhaps SummerSlam in the EW calendar is that uh, yeah I've, I've long tried to figure out what their Wrestlemania is but I don't know if they've really clearly defined what it is either um, surely they have to have one because that is such a money maker for WWE. Yeah, it feels like they're leaving money on the table. Kind of done. Maybe getting eyes on the product. Yeah, potentially th- this becomes it from now on. But I think there were some issues people were having that the card for the event was not of a WrestleMania style event standard. In um, what way? The just the quality, the booking. Uh, well, both. Chiefly, people were not happy that Kenny Omega did not have a singles match. Um, he was in a six-man tag, which okay. many people were not. You know, it just felt like it was kind of like a waste of of his talent to have him in the biggest event he's going to ever be in, not wrestling the Kenny Omega match. You know, the five-star classic. Um, he was in a very enjoyable match. Um, mm-hmm. There were a lot of like multi-man matches, probably so they could like just get people on the card and give them a payday and get them to go to the event for like a nice thing for everybody. So maybe there was an element of, you know, you're just trying to fit everybody in because there was only one women's match and it was a four way and it lasted like 10, 20 minutes. And that was it. So again, you know, there were questionable booking things there, but the MJF, MJF, Adam Cole stuff was exemplary. It was like perfect wrestling. It was so good. The, The crowd was eating it up, me included. Is what you saw what people at home would have saw on TV, or do you get like, is the TV like an edited version? Uh, no, it was like we kept saying that we needed to go get like more drink. I especially needed to go get more drink because I booed myself hoarse when CM Punk came out, came out <laughs> first. Had I known what he'd just done before he walked out because he'd got in a fight with somebody. Who, Did he? Yeah, this guy Jack Perry, who's the son of Luke Perry from um, 90210, whatever it was. He Perry Saturn, yeah. Also him. They had like a baby together, um, yeah, <laughs> and the mop was involved somehow too. Uh, <laughs> they so apparently Jack Perry wanted to use some real glass in a in a bit from a few weeks ago that I don't remember what even happened in it. But CM Punk said no, he wasn't allowed to do it because CM Punk's the boss apparently. So they had a like in this match that Jack Perry had, he came out. And they he came out in a limo, and then he got suplexed through the the windscreen of the limo, and he looked into the camera and said something like, "That's real glass, cry me a river or something." And then apparently, as he was walking to the back, CM Punk asked if they had a problem, and then 
apparently CM Punk got him in a headlock and then had to go out for his match. So I'm glad I booed him as loud as possible, but not for the resulting hoarseness that I felt for the entire night. Could barely sing Chris Jericho's theme music properly. I was gutted. Oh, is that the reaction CM Punk gets these days, or is he still a big face? No, he gets... Uh, I don't know what the percentage is, the ratio of boos to cheers, it, but it felt like there were quite a few boos going on because... He's not done the Phil John Cena f- flip. Well, no, and I think Cena's problem was that people didn't like his character and were kind of bored, whereas CM Punk, mm-hmm. I feel like if you're not booing him, you're just advocating that he's it's okay for him to be an asshole to everybody. Like, he's the yeah. common denominator in everything that AEW seems to have issues going on at the moment. And, and he, you know, his mate, his mate bit Kenny follow. Omega for some reason. I don't get any of it. So... I was, uh, yeah, we're very, all me and my friends were all very much Young Bucks, AEW original fans versus not, you know, not liking CM Punk whatsoever. Mm-hmm. He won, obviously. So there was that. And it also took us three hours to get home, which was shit. But the event itself was excellent. It's coming, it's on again next year. They they announced that they're doing what it again. It? So you're, you're going back. There is no question that we'll be going back. And hopefully next year they'll kind of see it more as like, rather than this crazy one-off spectacle where we need to get everybody involved, they'll actually build to it properly and have a proper card with like a really stellar high, like marquee. I mean, MJF Adam Cole was a marquee match and they built to Mm. it really well. But I think there's a lot of people that, yeah, like I say, just were a bit too many gimmicky matches and silly matches going on that it kind of felt a little bit house show as some people would want to say and they've got a pay-per-view on sunday as well he's like oh that's a lot of pay-per-views he's um because they don't even do that many pay-per-views in a year but he's committed apparently to having a pay-per-view in chicago at the same time every year and this was apparently the only time they could get wembley so they kind of had no choice but to do what they did but it was weird because like at the beginning before the event started in the zero hour stuff they had like a set up for a match the week after it's kind of like you're in front of eighty thousand people and you're building up to a match in front of eight thousand people in a week's time like what are you doing yeah how are you happy doing this you must be gutted you've basically just come out here because you're on the shittier pay-per-view in a week's time. that's amazing that a wrestling like this is probably the first time since wcw that there's been a wrestling um company is that the right word that would sell that many tickets that isn't wwe Definitely, definitely. There must be it must be a pretty because I'm trying to think of like not being a rest a mad wrestling fan. I'm trying to think of like the company's TNA was one that seemed to appear. Does that still a thing? That's called Impact Wrestling now, but it is it is still a thing. It's just um, it's never cracked. Like it, it's it's always had good viewing numbers apparently from like outside of the states. So right, they, they've okay. had like good international viewing numbers. Um, which is obviously always impressive to get good viewing numbers for something like that in an era of streaming and pirating yeah. and whatever. But they've never they'd never be able to put on a, an event like this. The the primary reason is just because Tony Khan's dad is so rich, he can buy he anything sort of, he wants. He can do anything yeah. he wants. The fact that they got yeah. Wembley sold out, in you know not sold out, but they've sold eighty one thousand tickets, is very very impressive. But it, again, yeah. it just shows like how starved British people are for that level of wrestling coming over here because you only see that American wrestling are like twice a year and never the, in the like, AEW's case. Sort of adult wrestling fans are until until this um, AEW came along they're pretty starved for 
proper good wrestling content as well because WWE has been bad for a long time, right? Yeah. I didn't see, I, I barely saw any children at AEW at all. It was all people who look like a less washed version of me. Which is, yeah. It was all I guess right, that's, yeah. Just that's all, got to be a good thing, though. Yeah, that's, you know market, you're in the right place, I think. For amongst, someone like you. Yeah. yeah. I'm amongst yeah. people of a similar age and mindset rather than seeing loads of kids with John Cena shirts or whatever. This is, for me, proper. Yeah. I, I, I guess there's like a... It's, it's a, 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 I don't know. Maybe there's. I see similarities in that. Like when I was younger and we were in video games, there weren't many, if any big video game nerds of our age that we are now so like it's nice to see that now we are that age that are still there's still a market for us and they still do make games for someone of our age because there's enough of us to obviously make it a viable viable um business Mm. i guess it's a similar idea right and like like wrestling fans have sort of aged up and there's a product now providing for them because WWE hasn't been that product in a long time really has it yeah. since the 90s really exactly and it's it's being AEW is primarily being run and marketed by people who are our age and grew up watching what mm-hmm. we watched and want to deliver a product that we would want rather than whatever WWE is doing and do you Saudi think money do you think WWE sort of has its market and it will always be like that or because like I'm trying to think like last time WWE got really good obviously was the Attitude Era and that was as a result of competition from WCW mm. so now they've got a legitimate competitor in the arena or the wrestling arena do you think they get better or, or are they so big now they're sort of happy to operate in their the area that they have you know, like sort of the the Nintendo of yeah. It kind of seems like they're they're from an outside perspective. That's where they're at. Is that they are because well, their viewing figures still good. Apparently, yeah. Apparently, their live show figures are really good. They've got an event coming up in the UK. They sold like forty five thousand tickets in a day or something. So that I believe was some kind of record. Um, so I think when Vince McMahon had had to go away for his sexual assault stuff, it seemed as if Triple H and the new sort of creative ownership of the company were trying to make it different. But it does seem like since Vince has come back that it has regressed into his preferences again. So it, that company has to change at some point when he's di- when he dies but or, or gets arrested and put in jail or whatever is going to be yeah. his, his ending. Um but I think as, as long as he's around, it, it's just it is going to stick with what he wants and what he says goes, and it's not always what fans are after. AEW is probably too much the other way though; they're a little bit too reactive to fans. They're, they're yeah. too trying to be like too on the pulse with it, um, so that if anything gets a negative reaction or something, they, they'll immediately try and like change it up. It's it's a bit too reactive. They don't necessarily stick with things as rigidly as WWE would if they believe in it. I'm quite surprised, and this may, I fully admit that this is going on a podcast, so I will freely admit that this could be my sort of cultural ignorance more than anything else, but I'm quite surprised a society like the Saudis would want to invest in wrestling. I mean, it's violent, lots of women not wearing very many clothes. Well, remember, they weren't allowed out there the first couple of times. Yeah, it seems like something I'm not sure. I guess perhaps that's why it is a bit more sanitised these days. And also because they were wanting to, Vince McMahon's wife was wanting to be a 
politician for a while, wasn't it? So they yeah. were sort of trying to clean up their act. That's exactly what he was trying to do, yeah. And mm. I guess they've maintained they maintain that for advertising and, and now I guess, yeah, to appease these other nations. Although I mean, you know, Saudis Yeah, it'd be a bit odd for them to dislike violence, but I guess that's kinda like how we used to feel when Germany was the most sensitive to video game censorship, right? It's just kinda like Yeah, I'm just historically to think of like, it doesn't so really it's a heavily work. Conservative religious society, isn't it? And yeah, in my mind, wrestling doesn't marry up with that. But again, that's maybe maybe me wrong. I'm probably totally, obviously totally wrong because they have invested. Yeah, I mean, maybe like sports makes. I can see sports. That makes sense. It's a yeah. clean. Yeah, I like, right. think of even like the drinking culture. I mean, it's not so much anymore. It's it's cleaned up a lot. But like the traditional drinking and drugs culture that was operating around wrestling as well it just doesn't doesn't seem to marry up with that's a really good point yeah the Saudis at all to me seems like it's all down to sergeant slaughter putting in the work in the uh, early 90s when he became that saudi sympathizer gimmick he paved the way he was a pioneer <laughs> he's done it yeah they were playing the long game they could see it coming thanks sarge i wonder how resident evil sells in saudi arabia do you think it sells well probably not do i mean do, I'd be fascinated to see any type of video game numbers for Saudi Arabia. I don't, I don't know no, what the culture is like that at all. There'll be, certainly be censorship in it. I know because I've been, I've spent a lot of time in Dubai. So if you go to the cinema in Dubai and there's a kissing scene, for example, they'll just cut it straight out. Really? Yeah, they'll just hack it out and show you the movie. Hack it out like there. a journalist's heart. Yeah. So I'd imagine, like, so I'm playing Baldur's Gate 3 at the moment, none of those sloppy, awkward, makes you squirm inside your stomach because they're so cheesy sex scenes are going to be going to be in that game. Maybe that game is not allowed out there. Or you just use a VPN, I guess. Probably. And then you can get it. Do you reckon they'd even let you um, see the, the scene at the end of Resident Evil where Chris holds Jill's hand on the helicopter? Do you reckon that's getting cut out? <laughs> Maybe that would be allowed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing in this game really that I think they would maybe be cutting out. Well, apart from the introduction, which is cut out for everybody but the Japanese. Did you see that? In yeah. Game? Yeah, I think it was not in the. For, I, so I think I got that version, right? Yeah. Did I? Yeah. yeah. So if you rewatched mm. that again when you restarted the game with all the fancy graphics, you should have seen the whole brutal oh, scene. Then no, I didn't. I think you probably. No, I didn't. You probably cut past it. Yeah, I did, because I started a new game as Chris, and then after finishing it as Jill, and then... Well, you started on the PlayStation, like emulating the PlayStation version, which would have been a like an, at least an American version, which would have had that cut mm-hmm. out. Then when you started playing it, the Japanese version, you probably skipped it both times, so you missed out on all the graphic violence. Ah, what an idiot. What an idiot. <laughs> well, there we go, ladies and gentlemen. By next episode, David will have watched it and he can give us an updated opinion on it before we kick off whatever game we do. Oh, I know what game we're doing next. We'll tell you later. Well, and I also started, um, re- well, I I downloaded the audiobook of Itch Tasty and thought, I can listen to this while I'm commuting. That'll be a fun thing to listen to. So I've started listening to that. Who reads it? Which that'll be fun. Anybody? Sorry? Anybody decent reading it or is it the guy himself? Didn't recognise anyone. Okay. Couldn't tell you, if I'm honest. I would have to go and look it up. Let's do it, in fact. We're on a podcast. Let's yeah. have a quick look. While you do that, just for the video audience, I recently did a uh, another trade-in. 
sent some stuff off to CEX in order to spend some more money. Oh, well, yes. some more voucher. And I, the game I ordered, I was really excited to get it back, uh, to get it. And I got a package that looked blatantly like it was coming from CEX the other day. And it was um, them sending back one of the games that they'd refused. A game I'd oh. never actually put in my console, but I did not buy new. So they said it was scratched. It was like a Ratchet and Clank PS3 game that I just thought I'm never going to play. Um, they sent it back? Yeah. I was only like three quid. But anyway, it's slightly related to this podcast that we're doing. Any? Would you like to do a guess of what I've got? It's not Resident Evil, but it is a sort of adjacent type of game. So is it, so is it survival horror? Yes. Okay, so before we do this, it is a lady called oh, a lady. Cindy okay. Kay is, is, is narrating it, and she has done other books such as Awakening Fertility. Some book called The Hate Vow, which is in the Quicksilver quick series and has a... As a man with no top on, on the cover. Um, so yeah, no one famous is the answer to that. It's a bit of a career um, switch. Yeah, that is that is a move from softcore housewife porn to and fertility Resident books. Evil. Yeah, <laughs> and fertility books. <laughs> right. So you've gone survival horror. Yeah, and what's annoying Let's, is is that I actually did own this before and got rid of it, and now decided I wanted it again. <laughs> Is it a disc yeah. or is it a cartridge? It's a disc. Yeah. Is it a Sony disc? No. Microsoft? Yes. It's a disc. It's Microsoft era, era, era. OG Xbox? Mm-hmm. You've been going to buy those again recently. Yep. It is. Yep. Publisher? Bethesda? <laughs> no. No. I was trying to think of that one game, oh, years and years ago, I played at your mum's house. It was Bethesda yes. horror game. It's Call of Cthulhu. What? Dark yeah. Wars of the Earth. Yeah, I've still got that one. I never got rid of that in the end. Japanese publisher. Yeah. This is a really so obvious it, game. It's a Silent Hill then, is yeah. it? Which one? X- and OG Xbox, mm. did you say? There's only two of them on the OG Xbox, and I've got the other one. Was that two and three? Two and four. don't know why three is not four. So yes, yes. Um, well, let's go with what you get. Oh, look at that! This is probably the best. That's a cool box as well. It goes well with the green. Uh, sorry, the best quality game I've got from CEX in a very long time. Really, yeah, that's good. So, like no scuffs, no scratches. Thirty-five quid though. Sure. Well, for me it wasn't because it's just a bunch of games that I got rid of. But I've yeah, wanted to play cause... Silent Hill Two again, and I don't want to play the HD version because it's. A disgrace, and it's it's not even the right like the same voice actors or anything. I think it's Troy Baker on. Oh, that is it one. not? No, they changed. Did they, the, re, did they remaster it? In yeah. Quotation marks. Yeah. So they changed. The, I believe they may have even changed the script. But they definitely changed the voice acting, and then obviously it had all those bugs and issues with it that they barely fixed, and they didn't fix on Xbox 360, but did on PS3. It's just yeah. So I wanted the original version, and I don't. I, I wanted this like Xbox updated version of it. Brand new bonus scenario, yeah. never seen before. And Control Maria, new areas, weapons, and items. Enhanced graphics and lighting effects. hey We're going to have to play Res, uh, Silent Hill 2 at some point for the podcast then. Um, I think we should do all three. It's two, three, and four. I think we should do all of mm-hmm. them at some point. Yeah. September of Silent... <laughs> no, no. Silent September. And, and, oh, yeah. and all the podcasts, that we just we just put the title up. I mean, just don't speak on the podcast. Yeah, we just... just silent... Yeah, we, we just Maybe, sit in front you know, of the TV and play it. And people have to try yeah. and guess what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> I watched uh, Let's Play on Giant Bomb before I threw in the towel on that website. 
of the first Silent Hill, mm-hmm. and it, I was quite shocked on how it didn't look like I would have a good time with it. No, it doesn't, does it? I've got it, and it's not no. fun. No. Can it die to the point that I'm not even sure how that would have been considered good back in the PS4? <laughs> Bad. Do we- Unlike this game. See what oh, actually that's, got. That's a, that's a Google face. It is a Google face. Silent Hill for PlayStation on Metacritic. 86. See, hmm. that's a good game. I yeah. when did it what year did it come out? 99. Which did we not say um it coming out was part of the reason that they messed around with their ordering and what Resident Evil 3 was, didn't they? Because that came out in 99 and they were worried that they were gonna get outdone by this. So they had to sort of rethink what they were doing. But I heard somebody talking about Silent Hill for the room the other day, and I know that hasn't really got a lot of sort of crazy praise. You know, the PS2 and Xbox One's got 76. But the premise of it does actually sound very interesting. So I'm excited for us to give that a try at some point. Yeah. It's uh I've Silent Hill, I've played Silent Hill 2, obviously. Yeah. Um but other than that, I've not really poked at that series too much. No, I've I never played three or years. four. I've only ever played two or no. one. I think, I mean, I've played like little bits of a lot of them, but never yeah. never to the point that I could give you an opinion on them in any way. Exactly. So, yes, so that could be watch out for those. Well, exactly. Watch out for these games coming soon. Well, we dive into Resident Evil 1996, Alex. Re- yes, which um, it's- I can safely say is the seventh best Resident Evil game we've ever covered on this podcast. <laughs> we can. I keep calling it, I've been trying to think about how to refer to this game, and I keep calling it Resident Evil 96 because I don't know why, but I really don't like it when people say Resident Evil 1 or like Halo 1 because mm. it's not Halo 1, it's just Halo. Yeah, I'm I'm fully with you there, and I don't like having to say that either. That's that's absolutely fair, and, and I've been I've been agonising about what to call the podcast as well because I think I'm going to have to put Resident Evil brackets 1996, or am or am I? Do I just do we just call the next yeah. one Resident Evil Remake? Yeah, maybe because maybe that's what it is, and then you get Resident Evil Remaster mm-hmm. and Remake Director's Cuts. There's a lot of releases of these games, especially this anyway. Game. Yeah, well, let's get to it. As many of you will know, Resident Evil was first released in Japan on the 22nd of March 1996 before making its way to North America on the 30th of March and then later that year on the 1st of August in Tapal Territories. If I knew this before, Alex, I've actually since forgotten it and I have since forgotten it to the point that I maybe don't quite trust it and you'll be able to verify this, but apparently my research suggests that Resident Evil was originally conceived by the game's producer, Takuru Fujiwara, as a remake to the 1989 horror game Sweet Home. Correct. Does that information sound correct? Yes. Good. Which is what we've touched on before, saying about the point-and-click feel of this game, because that's what Sweet yes. Home is. That's, I think I've actually got that written in my notes already, because it just keeps jumping out in my head like even like walking around the sort of static environments with the 3d models it just there's like angles it just looks like a point and click game um side note mm -hmm. in typical david fashion uh you know there's a rabbit hole available if you'd like to jump (laughs) down it i would quite like to have us both watch sweet home and have a chat about it 
because I've never seen it. The Netflix oh. show. Well, I meant the original Japanese movie. But yeah, I'd be keen for that. No, I think that's probably a better idea because I don't even know. I think I've started, maybe started watching Sweet Home, but I, I don't know if it's got anything to do with mm, yeah the the IP yeah or if it's just something new. It has to it has to be the same. But I'd be keen IP, for that. But that would be fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd be interested to have a little chat about what we feel about the influence to all of this. I've often I've often thought that that would be quite fun if we'd been playing a game that has got like a TV adaptation, like a movie or a show, to sort of tie that in. To, to some sort of theme that we're doing, but yeah, I've never actually got to the Patreon bonus that, so of, uh, episodes in it when people actually start listening to this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We can go through because think of all the Resident Evil movies and books. I, and I had that TV thought going in my head the other day. I was like, oh, we should, you know, when we run out of games for Summer of Resi, we'll have to do the films. And then I had to hit myself. <laughs> what are you doing to yourself, you idiot? <laughs> you don't want to do that. Might as well play a fucking Pokemon game. Oh, good lord. It's going to happen one day. I know I'm going to, I'm going to do it, Alex. I'm going to do it, and then I'm going to regret it as soon as I do it. Yeah, it's going to have to be fire red or leaf green. I won't accept anything different. Okay. Um, before the game, before this title eventually became the Resident Evil that we know and love today, it started off in 1993 as a Super Nintendo game um, before becoming a fully 3D for, uh, first-person shooter around 1994, and then finally the static camera third-person game that the the first few games in the season became known for hmm. to date i had a look and there's an alex you're I, i'm probably going to miss a few of these out but we're talking purely resident evil 1.0 without the remakes and remasters there's a few versions of this game there's the ps1 release that came out in 1996 and um, there was a ps1 director's cut which came out in 1997 the pc version which i think is the one i played uh, came out in 1997. There's a Sega Saturn version, which also came out in 1997. Really and then that. there's the Nintendo DS version, which I believe you played. I did. It came out in 2006. Um, and there's the and then I've got the director's cut DualShock version that I showed everybody last week. Yes, uh, I think I, I don't know if I said this in a podcast before. I surely have. There was a rumor going around my school when the DualShock became a thing that it, it was a controller that gave you an electric shock. Yeah. And I could not... Two of them. Understand. Dual <laughs> yeah, shocks. Two shocks. My my child brain could not for the life of me understand why someone would want to willingly buy a controller that gave you an electric shock. Have you ever sat on one of those machines? You know, when you go to like um, a theme park and stuff like Alton Towers or no, whatever. Too you scared know, it's of like them. where you hold on to the electric... Sort of the metal so I used to have a... Electric you in the seat. I've been too I don't know too. why... I don't know why, but I used to own this this game, and you always used to hold a a little. It was like a handheld thing that had like little metal bits on the on where the hand was, and it had a red button on the top. And then it would all be connected to this box in the middle, and there'd be a red flashing light on it. And me, and my my friends used to always be desperate to play it before we went out on a night out. And what I would do is it would it would be this flashing red light, and it would be like beep beep. And then the, the the red light would flash green, and as soon as the red light flashed green, you had to push the button, and the last person to push the button would get an electric shock. Um, that's the closest I ever did. I hated that thing. It still terrifies me to this day. Uh, is it called Lightning Reaction Extreme? Yeah, yeah, it's exactly that. <laughs> what a horrible device that was. Yeah, it genuinely hurt as well. There is a weird fascination for dudes 
doing stupid shit like that. Like I remember a mate of mine yeah. always used to be like, oh, have you ever licked a battery? It's really funny. What? No. <laughs> <laughs> but he did. He showed okay. me it. He licked the battery. I was like, Ugh, it's horrible. Do you want to <laughs> do it? No. No, I don't know why would I? <laughs> I might as well go stand on a plug. Let's wrestle this podcast back on topic, Sorry. though. Um, Alex, let's kings, kick things off with some general thoughts. How do you feel about the game? Standout moments, better for better or worse? Was it better or worse than you were expecting? Um, I suppose it's also worth talking about how we played this game. As you said, you played. we said you played the DS version. Um, so they've got a bit of context and sort of how you felt about that version as well. Because you've played other versions in the past, I assume. Yes, I have. Uh, although primarily I've only ever played the PlayStation version. I had never played the PC version that you mm-hmm. dove into. Definitely enjoyed it more than I expected to. Obviously, I've played it quite a lot in my life, but not for a, at least 10 years, I would have said. Um, and probably is the first time I've ever played it without my friend Chris, who always used to talk me through these games forevermore. And yeah, I think it actually holds up really well, depending on what version you play. I think... Mm-hmm playing the original PlayStation version definitely felt um, slow. When I played it on the PS5, the director's cut that they've got on there, um, which is just the PS1 version sort of ported, that felt incredibly slow, Even like especially compared to Resident Evil 3, which, as we agree, is like a really sort of fast-paced, action-packed yeah. version of this, which is why we ranked it higher in our last episode. But when I switched over to the DS version, Game Changer, um, it just felt so much slicker, felt so much more user-friendly with the, having the quick turn in there and the touch screen, having the map on it, being able to combine stuff in your inventory using the, the stylus or the, the touch screen so I could combine mm-hmm. like weapons and guns and all that kind of stuff. Tactical reload. Um, you could skip the door opening, loading screens. And it also has quite a lot of... Um, additional gameplay stuff in it that I will I'll get into a bit later but I we've had it said on this podcast before by KDB that it was like the optimum way to play Resident Evil 1 and he's absolutely right it's it's an unbelievably yeah. good version of the game which got unfairly shit on when it came out because it came out close to a period of time where oh, I think in fact I think it came out after Resident Evil 4 had already come out okay so the series had long, long left that type of Resident Evil in the past. And I guess people were just disappointed that this was what was coming instead of something new. But as time has gone on, and if people are looking for a way to play Resident Evil 1 and can get hold of it, I believe it's quite sought after. And you'd have to buy a DS or a 3DS. This is a really, really great way to play. It looks really good. Like to to see, I know it's a, you know, it's a DS, which came out way after the PS1. Um, you know, we're talking pretty much 10 years on from it for it to look as close to the original ps1 game that's on a disc on a tiny little ds cart um and have all the you know the sounds in there and stuff heavily compressed of course but really impressive piece of work obviously but if you played it on did you put in your 3ds yes um that's not so much of an issue but i was also thinking when you were talking there it coming out in 3ds is probably it's a great platform for it as well because it would, in 2006 that would have been the time before the nubbin so like you didn't you only had the one sort of well this is input. ds remember so i don't even know if it had a the day, well, i thought la- i thought like end like end of life ds has had a wee nubbin on it depends what 
there was a Metal Gear came out. That was Gear game that came out, and that was either on the 3DS or the DS, and that was a sort of the first wave. But then you must be right because the 3DS didn't launch with a nubbin, which yeah. makes me think 3DS launched with one th- analog stick on the left. Yes, but the DS I yeah. don't think ever had an analog stick. Ever had one? So, and I was playing I it with it makes- the D-pad anyway. Even though I have two, I have both those left and right analog sticks on my 3DS. I was playing it with the D-pad. The fixed camera angles then probably do work quite well for this type yeah, of game. totally. Which is great. And it looks fine, because try- try- as you've been speaking about it, I've been trying to remember the quality of the, the 3DS screen, and I I can't really. I can remember the sort of the bottom screen always looked quite washed out. It does, but doesn't it? The top one is much better, is it? I can't remember mm. it at all. Which was, I, I actually found a shame that the all the cutscenes are shown on the bottom screen, which I found weird, because as you say, that it, it's better quality image on the top screen because that is just a screen whereas the bottom one Mm -hmm. is the sort of squishy touchy one so as you can say and it gets all smudged up with your hands and stuff how did they tie in the touchscreen stuff it drastically changes it for example that well the biggest change for the to the fundamental gameplay is like you'll have these random events where it goes first person and zombies just come at you and all you've got is a knife and you have to swipe on the screen to like attack stuff including like hunters and dogs and stuff the dogs are a pain in the dick i couldn't get the timing right for them when they jump at you to try and swipe them away oh i'm gonna have to look that up that is really different yeah in a way i was not expecting in fact even sometimes there was crows on there and stuff but it also has loads of touchscreen puzzles that are totally different so for an example of one or, or several actually um the dining room where you put the gold emblem in so you know you take the emblem go swap it over with the gold one put it in and then the clock moves out the way that's right there was a puzzle element to that on the ds where you had to actually like move the hands of the clock with the stylus to make it to a bit a specific time before it would actually open the thing what else <laughs> you know uh richard who is dying um from the snake bite do you remember that yes yeah. I had to give him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation by blowing into the microphone on the DS. <laughs> fucking hated it. <laughs> I actually thought I was going to like pass out because I couldn't do the breath long enough. I think the microphone sensitivity wasn't high enough. Have you got some dirt in but there? I ran out of the blow. Like I kept, like I blew as long as I possibly could, and I had no breath left. So ran uh, out of the blow. I felt, I, yeah, I failed it. Um, but you give like so you give him mouth to mouth and then you save him and he's like oh go set the dining room clock to eight twelve and then you get some shotgun shells out of it. It's really weird. There's a room where you, um, you know the room uh, with the the moose head in it, where you had mm-hmm. to like turn the light off. At, is it and you room? get this where you get the magnum right. Yeah, I had to blow the candles out in that room with a okay DS microphone again. There's one puzzle where you have to like spin a record on a record player with the touch screen there was um and in every save room pretty much there's like a blue box and it's got like a puzzle that you do on it and after you do these puzzles you get like extra items oh cool free stuff so i quite like that you would i think you'd enjoy it. yeah it, I, the first person stuff with the knife swiping really got to me at the end because it was doing it in rooms I'd been through like three or four times and it's mm. interrupting backtracking for the same shit. Now, sometimes it did give you an item. So if you, you know, if you kill up all the zombies that are coming after you, sometimes it would drop like handgun bullets or mm-hmm. herbs, but it became quite tiresome towards the end. I just wanted to like get moving. So when I played my Chris playthrough, I just did it as the classic mode 
um, rather than this rebirth mode is what they call it for the the touchscreen stuff and yeah although the the puzzles and stuff in the rebirth mode are excellent and, and way better than the lack of them in the original game like, you know the one where you um where you lower the water to get the sharks all fucked yeah. up when you do that on the the rebirth mode like then a poisonous gas starts coming out of the the room oh, and you have to quickly run over and like turn this valve with the touch screen to not so die much by poisonous gas in this game yeah you know and it would be like a box I'd, yeah well I, i'd like <laughs> anticipate it i'd be like gas anticipate it cover up where the gas was going to come out and i'd leave like a little yeah little tiny little square and it would still <laughs> kill me and i'd be like why <laughs> Uh, so annoying but i I, yeah. I was pleasantly surprised by this game as well my sort of takeaway points with it were largely positive i was expecting it to be totally fine and i was actually glad that we've sort of spent obviously off, on and off mainly off the last two years sort of digging into resident evil as a franchise on mm. this podcast because it sort of had primed my brain for the tank controls that i thought were going to be a real barrier for me i i think i'd I, i've i've since retracted it on podcasts as well but i was also concerned in the run-up to this game that the puzzles were going to annoy me because in my head they were quite obtuse they were very point and click but actually when i played it they were fairly intuitive um there wasn't well, there wasn't really many points where i just had no idea what i was supposed to be doing so i'm not sure what gave me that opinion back in the day i think it might be the remake to be honest with you which was yeah. would have been one of the first old school Resident Evil games you've played. You probably played like five or whatever, and then I think it you went been, back um, and got the yeah. remake on the um, Xbox One. Yeah, and I think that mm. was probably a bit of a culture shock in terms of how different it was to what you'd just done. Because we did a podcast about that with Chris ages ago, and we talked about how stupid the puzzles were on that, and I remember you saying that at mm. the time. So I think it is that that got this in your head. So, but I'll be interested to see how you feel about them next time when we actually come back and play that with this in your recent memory. Yeah. Um, the version I played, like I say, I think it was PC version, and I had an HD pack installed to make it look good, and it looked pretty good. I didn't ever manage to get the seamless HD pack installed that we spoke about. It doesn't seem as did have... needed as it did for the other ones. There just seems no, to be sort of like an additional bit to an HD patch that already exists. Right, yeah. I mean, I thought it looked pretty good. There was obviously, there were certain moments where, and I think it's just the nature of the age of the game, plus, and probably plus the HD packs, to be honest with you. I didn't think that the characters quite fit with the environments, and they looked like they were sort of skating over 2D. It's the most noticeable one, for sure, yeah. Yeah. I agree um, with that. But for the most part, it was great. I enjoyed looking at a lot of this the a lot of the static environments and I, I think there's certain ones that would make a great picture for the wall hmm. I often think but yeah I, I did enjoy it it was great fun and the addition of the quick turn because I, I don't know what I would I think I've finally cracked Alex I, I've I started using quick turns in, in Resident Evil games and I'm not sure like running away from some of the hunters and stuff would have been so much worse if yeah. you had no quick turn and no auto aim would be even worse yeah um, I'm trying to think of like from a modern perspective if you can give, sort of get over the controls from a modern perspective the only real drawback I can think of in terms of things that might hold you back and sort of mar the experience slightly is I didn't think the map was particularly good um, and the version I played it would show you what room you were in which was at least helpful mm. um, but that was about it I there was no dedicated map around. button either you have to uh, yeah. go into your inventory and then select the map and then select the floor you want Mm-hmm. 
But I was finding all sorts of problems with that. When I switched to the DS version, which has a little yellow dot on the map, which is constantly Uh displayed on the top screen. And as you move, it moves where you are in the room. That's good. Night and day. So much easier to get around. But this is the worst map, I think, in Resident Evil. All of them. It's one thing. It's also made me realise... What is it? We studied it in, at uni very, very briefly, but is it the 180 degree rule? Like the Y, the, you should never cross the Y axis. Like, or not the Y axis, but switch, something like that, isn't it? Yeah, switch around. Like I was finding that there was aspects in which you sort of you would have the camera facing your character one way, and you bring up the map, and the map would be mirrored. <laughs> and mm. I, you know, it was, yeah. it, the bit that's jumping to mind is when you go to the top of the stairs in the main hallway. Yeah. So you'd open the you'd open the map. It would be the opposite way around from what the camera shows you, yes. and that that confused the life my brain, the life out of me for the entirety of the game. To the point that I was predicting that I was confused, trying to anticipate the confusion, but anticipating it wrongly. It's like playing football manager, and you're like the away team, so you're at the top of the screen, and your left back has yeah. to go on the right hand side. Yeah, 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 yeah. Constantly, you've probably seen it when I play football manager, and I I write out my squad. <laughs> my right back is always on the left-hand side of my, my sheet. Yeah. <laughs> don't know why. <laughs> so, as we all know, Resident Evil is a third-person survival horror game in which the player controls either Chris Redfield or Jill Valentine. Alex was an absolute trooper and he did two playthroughs. I messed about a bit with Chris Redfield, but did my playthrough primarily as Jill. Um, which are they're, Both of them are two members of a special forces group called STARS, which stands for Special Tactics and Rescue Group. The game begins as players respond to a previous Stars team who have gone missing after being sent to investigate a series of disappearances, creature sightings and murders. They are sent to a mansion on the outskirts of Raccoon City to investigate. The game is presented, as was spoken about, in real-time 3D superimposed on pre-rendered backgrounds, which I think and maybe, I'm, maybe I am placing my opinion on you, but I think we both agree that it actually looks pretty good. And yeah. It allowed you to get more bang for your buck. Was that that? I mean, you'll probably know this more than I. But my memory of this is this allowed them to make the game look better than sort of other games on the platform because of this yeah. sort of pre-rendered environment. So there was no moving parts other than the character on screen, really. So it allowed them to make things look really, really nice. Yeah, and I think that and that it's, even it's in the less re- intensive on the memory as well because it's just a static image rather it's a jpeg than, isn't it yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> final fantasy 7 is another key you know example of something like that where it, if you play like especially an upscaled version of it now you'll see these like really sharp polygons running around these like textured backgrounds that just look really yeah. weird and like sort of sharply contrast with each other in terms of their actual fidelity but allowed them to do the exact same there as well like have really impressive looking backgrounds with shitty looking sprites <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, I found it quite interesting when I was thinking about what the gameplay actually is in this game. Because I always think of Resident Evil as you fight zombies. But actually, to me, the gameplay in the first Resident Evil is more puzzle-based than that. And it's more mm. sort of discovering the secrets of the mansion. So like things you need to do is you need to go around and you need to actually read the notes if you want to pro- properly figure things out. Combine items, investigate items, um you get to know the mansion while navigating the dangers that lurk around every turn. And the the zombies around the map to me, or around the mansion, sorry, to me are more just sort of gameplay interludes to keep things interesting as you're moving from area to area to figure out the puzzles. Um, the only time the game really has an enemy that poses a real threat, I would say, is the hunters. 
to a certain extent. Yeah. Maybe the dogs to a lesser extent. And then there's the what do you, what is he called? The the is he's not a titan, he's a tyrant. Tyrant, that's it. But even them, if you've got a Magnum, he's really no bother that at was, all. Because I found for some shocking reason, how easy that final boss is. They decided to put his heart on the outside of his body, which is an odd design choice if you're designing a monster. I mean, Frankenstein's um, monster wasn't exactly perfect, was it? He was no, no, true. Alex, how do you think the themes and the tone of the gameplay come across in 2023? Do you think the voice acting undermines the game at all? Or do you think it sort of adds a schlocky positive to the game um or, you, or you can you have you grown to love the little bits that are cheesy about it i think at first i probably did love the bits that are cheesy but did you notice they were cheesy when you're because i i think i, I must kid, have always I, done I, 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 just, I didn't did you when not I was a kid, that went straight over me because i i mean i just all i have in my memory is chris just going around just talking like wait don't move Take this and all this, like so. He was obsessed with doing like the arm movements and how terrible they were when we were at school. <laughs> so I think I've always found that to be dumb. And I think if you look back on it now, you kind of you know you you give it a pass, I suppose, because they just hired the first English actors that came to the studio or whatever to to do the job. Um, That's one thing that I didn't, I don't remember that I, I'm well, a lot of these things when I was researching for this podcast. I must have known at some point and I've just mm. forgotten. But I didn't realise that sort of the Japanese version of Resident Evil, Biohazard, has English voice acting in it as well. Yeah. And that they just they just sort of put the Japanese voice uh, they just subtitle subtitles yeah. underneath, which is, it's an interesting design choice. Yeah, and I guess I guess primarily because they were basing it off of a Western style of horror, they had probably assumed it was going to be marketed for us. Mm. I don't know if a lot of Japanese cinema is like that. I mean, I went to Japan and watched a film that was like that. Subtitle. Was it? Okay. Yeah, I watched. Um, what's the one with like Colin Firth in it? And it's like it's like some kind of James Bond ripoff with that young guy in it. What the the suit one? Would yeah. You call it? The, yeah. The, this, what's what it called? The Taylor? Think no. The Kingsman. Yes, Kingsman. That's it. Yeah. So I saw that, and that was subtitled. In Japanese, but the voices are all in English, so it's weird just watching that in a Japanese cinema. Yeah, but there's a. I do have a. I would have said I thought I had a fondness for how cheesy and shitty the first game is because it's like you know early stages. Having read Itchy Tasty, it's clear that they were they were very aware for the sequel how bad it actually came across and how like meme worthy it was, even though memes weren't a thing then. I would say now I barely have a tolerance for it. I don't know mm. why. I don't know what, like, where I lost my sense of fun with how silly it is. Like there were points where I, you know, I started writing notes, and at the early stages of my notes, I'm having a right old laugh, putting about how funny it is that Jill's the master of unlocking, but she doesn't even have her own lockpick and has to get it from Barry and all this kind of shit. Um, but by the end the of the game, I, I was really fed up with it. Really entertaining was like when Barry was helping Jill down that hole and he sort of <laughs> no, drops, I've done drops. It. Yeah, and then he just goes away. He's like, wait there, I'll come back. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Or how like... He's just gone. Chris, uh, without any knowledge of the... Oh, you didn't even do this, did you? Without any knowledge of the fact that it has a purpose, he just lets Rebecca... So when you get to the piano room, Chris doesn't know how to play piano. 
Jill does, obviously, but for Chris's mm-hmm. game, Rebecca comes in to play the piano and she just like says, oh, I'm going to practice for a bit. And then Chris just like goes around like risking his life fighting off like zombies and monsters and she's just fucking practicing <laughs> the piano for like an hour. <laughs> obviously, yes, it opens the door, but she doesn't know it's going to do that. You go nope. back and she's like, I've got it, look, and then plays it for you. I'd be like, well done, but <laughs> I, you know, I nearly fucking died. Like I said to you when you were playing it, when Barry, when you fight the snake for the second time and it's like his carcass is rotting and then Barry comes in. He's like, Jill, did you find anything interesting? As he's walking over the corpse of a giant snake. Like, no, mate, can't think of a thing. No, 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 no. My I God. find it. I, I was going to say I find it. In, I was going to say I find it surprising, but I actually don't find it surprising because I remember when I was a kid. This is me going on a tangent again. My gran would used to tell me that she went to see Snow White at the cinema, yeah, and it was an eighteen sort of rated movie, and she found it scary. So I guess that like what people find scary and intimidating changes. So it's not it's not surprising, but yeah, it's interesting to think that this was sort of the first survival horror and Mm. it's hard to think of this being a survival horror game because i feel like there's very little horror to this i i would agree i would agree some way towards that i think the the dogs jumping through the windows is one of the most iconic jump scares yeah that's that's true in gaming yeah okay yeah still kind of shit me up a little bit this time because i knew it was coming but i I fumbled the dogs look so goofy Mm. as well and maybe it was because of the patch, the patch I was using, sort of the HD patch. Oh, yeah, but like maybe. they had like their, they had like really wonky eyes, and they just looked a bit silly mm. to me. Um, but you're right they they do put, they do sort of shit you up. And the hunters, when you first encounter them, yeah. because they're a real they're a real danger. Um, and I think the the music is 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 really atmospheric when it kicks in. I think that's sort of got a cool style to it, like this sort of um, mm-hmm. not quite orchestral, but it's very piano heavy kind of spooky music going on i think the obviously the camera angles you can't see what's coming it's just so hard to take yourself back into that mindset of like Mm -hmm. seeing this as the revolution that it was back at the time when it came out because as you said this was basically ushering in survival horror as a genre alone in the dark maybe but that game looks even goofier than this so this was you know it was violent it was bloody people can get your head cut off and all that kind of stuff so i think it probably was scary it's almost like you know that video it feels to me like it should have had the impact of that classic scene that you see of people like watching a train coming towards them on the very first tv and used to run out of the cinema scared yeah Yeah. that that feels like that's how scary it would have been because like they've never you've never played anything like this because horror games before this were what ghouls and goblins and yeah zombies ain't my neighbors not scary in any can't be scary i I also i often it reminds me when we're talking about this being sort of a horror game obviously the the theme and the tone of the game changes when you sort of go underground into the into the into the lab area but i think a lot of the game up until that point and this is this is just going to sound totally mad, probably, but like to me, it always felt like a haunted mansion that they just stuck zombies in instead of ghosts. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, because of the the type of story they've got with the virus and stuff, it, it has to be some sort of monster and zombie as the sort of standard enemy makes sense for sort of what they've got available to them. But yeah, like the the way the mansion's set up, where you're like pulling stuff and playing notes on the piano to make doors open and stuff. Yeah, it does feel very much 
to me like a haunted mansion. Yeah, that's spot on. Which again, is Sweet Home not got ghosts in it? Yeah. Did I make that up? Yeah. Which, so maybe that maybe that's where it's come from. Yeah, they probably kept that part and that part mm-hmm. alone. And then, as you say, like pivoted towards a zombie story instead of whatever they were doing originally. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go through the different play styles because I think it's probably worthwhile that we can talk about this. So Jill is the the mode I did and then I sort of poked at Chris. You did both playthroughs. So I'm mm. going to sort of explain the differences between the two characters oh, and then yeah. I want to hear your your input and in what you thought about the two. Um, the game describes Jill's mode as the easy mode, which I think is probably accurate. But there's a couple of things in here that just makes it feel slightly different rather than a hard mode. Mm. But we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. So Chris, he's got six inventory slots. Well, that's um, just bollocks, can, by the way. That's annoying. I find that annoying. That um, was just, more it's than, just a hindrance rather than a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, apparently he can take more damage than Joe can take, though. Okay. Um, hmm. He needs small keys to open certain things because Jill's obviously the master lock picker. Um, he doesn't get access to the grenade launcher that Jill gets. Um, he has the lighter, which has a couple of uses. Um, his partner is Rebecca. Is that instead of Barry, then? Yes. Okay, so his partner's Rebecca, who can heal him a number of times since his small inventory makes the oh, player yeah, lose can. time. Forgot about that. And expose themselves to danger more frequently. Uh, Chris isn't smart or intelligent, is what this descriptor I found says, <laughs> as in a game mechanic. Uh, of, of Voice course, actor so he doesn't. No. So he, I mean, he doesn't know how to play the piano or make the V-Jolt formula to deal with uh, Plant 52. He needs Rebecca to do it, apparently. Yeah. How does that How does that work with the V-Jolt formula then? Does she just come in and do it for you? You start, you have to go and fight the plant for the first stage. So you can try and mix the, you can go into the chemical room, but it basically just mm-hmm. says, Chris doesn't know how to do this. So then I, I, I kept thinking to myself like how the hell am i going to get rebecca to make this v-jolt for me because i knew she had to do it from remembering this the remake but yeah so you have to go in and remember again without the the bazooka or the grenade launcher or whatever um fight the plant 42 with whatever you've got and then once Mm -hmm. you've got through stage one of it it grabs chris and like just holds him up by the neck and rebecca comes in is like you know probably says some terrible dialogue of oh are you okay and then he's you know, he basically just gets stuck in the room. So he's basically there the whole time getting strangled by the plant. And then Rebecca just trots off and makes the chemical for him, runs down to the basement, kills the root, and then it ends. But you take over as Rebecca and go make the V-Jolt. And then Chris is just being strangled by it the whole time. <laughs> um, one thing, before I continue, it's one thing that's jumped to mind because I can't remember if I put it in my notes or not, but it's, it's jumped in my head. Uh, we spoke about this when we were speaking about the Resident Evil 2 remake about whether sort of the the two different playthroughs are happening simultaneously or if they're sort of just two different versions of the same thing, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, obviously, this one is two different versions of the same thing yes. because you're doing the same things with each character. There is a novelization of this game that was made in which the author sort of take took the story and tried to meld it so that that is happening simultaneously and that Chris and Jill are running about the the mansion at the same time doing different things. So if you're interested in that, there is a book about that. Yeah, but I, I think I tried to look for those books after the last 
one of the last couple of podcasts and they seem to be almost impossible to get hold of and or extremely expensive. Well, if you want to send us both a copy, feel free. Yeah. Listeners. Um, yeah, so he can't do the they can't do the the video formula to deal with the plant. Um dealing with the hunters, again, this is this is supposition, but it's probably true, which is why I kept it. Dealing with hunters is harder because you you've only got the shotgun really. You don't have the the grenade launcher. Well, yeah, because um, they do go down with a couple of hits from that. The shotgun I did find them very tough towards the end of the game. I was running past way more enemies as Chris. Mm-hmm. Rebecca also can't save you from the ceiling trap that Barry does, Jill, at the beginning of the game because I got the shotgun super early because I took the shotgun off and then just left and then before you die, Barry comes and saves you. See, he, I knew there was happened a... To Chris. Yeah, I knew the Jill sandwich thing happened but for some reason I thought that that was fit in my head because I didn't try it. In my head, I thought it mm-hmm. was fixed by Barry walking in and taking the shotgun off you and putting it back but that's mm-hmm. not at all what he does. So I could have had the shotgun way earlier. Great, because I was struggling Can for ammo right so start, much as Jill for ages yeah. at the beginning of the game. Fuck's sake. Because it wasn't until later, I didn't even realise that was happening. It wasn't until later you stumble across the wooden one. I'm like, ah. Oh. Yeah. Didn't need it. <laughs> um, in the bathroom scene, Chris kills the zombie. I'm not sure what that means, but I kept it in because I thought you might. Do you know what that means? <laughs> Is that where you uh, take the plug out of the water or something? And does he kill it by on automatically or something? I don't know. I can't remember now. Um, and depending on what you do, Rebecca doesn't survive until the end, so Rebecca can die, which I didn't didn't know either. Oh, what would you do to make her die? I wonder, because she lived in mine, so I don't know what I would have had to do wrong. So apparently, Resident uh, Resident Rebecca's death is a possible cutscene in Resident Evil. This scene is triggered if the player, Chris Redfield, does not save Rebecca from the hunter in time. Receiving this scene means that the research facility will not self-destruct. The hunter in time. Hmm, maybe that was taken out of the DS version because I don't recall that at all. Interesting. She was just there to set off the self-destruct, I remember. Hmm, maybe they took it out. Possibly. Just quickly, uh, Jill has eight inventory slots. Inventory slots. She takes less damage than Chris. She's got the lock pick, which Wait, removes his necessity. She can take less damage before she dies. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Right. Yeah. Um, she's got the lock pick, obviously, which we've discussed. Um, she gets access to the grenade launcher, which Barry sometimes gives you ammo for if you know how to trigger certain scenes. I did not. The lighter is a normal item, which can be discarded after it's used. Um her part, her partner Barry, which can help her way more than Rebecca, is on Chris's side. If you abuse Barry's help, though, he dies at the end. Oh shit! He died for me. He did die for me as well. Oh, so he can um, live, can he? Yeah, apparently. You can apparently you can use him twice. Unfortunately, there are scenes that Barry doesn't help you, but they count. Um, oh. Well, as they were, that. so you have to be careful if you want to save him. I did not know that either. So probably me getting a shotgun earlier led towards him dying. And I def- I got him to help me right at the beginning of the game where you go to the zombie and turn around, run back into the dining room and he shoots it for you. I think you did. I did as well. I think you I told, told you to do, do that. that yeah. yeah. <laughs> Didn't know I was costing Barry his life. No, neither did I. Joe can play the piano and make the video formula by herself. Well, isn't she just Miss Perfect? Yes, she is. Uh, she can obviously kill hunters more easily due to the grenade launcher, which make that does make hunters a bit of a formality. Oh, they're so hard in the in the Chris version. 
Barry can save you from the ceiling trap. A lot of people do this. You'll be burning one of his helps that you could use to to keep him alive. Um, but you'll skip the back the backtracking of the broken shotgun, saving you valuable minutes if you're trying to speedrun it, I suppose. Barry yeah. can also save you from Plant 42 if you didn't make the video formula for Chris. It's a requirement. Yes, you have to. That's right. You have to do it to save Chris. But for Jill, I guess, yeah, you just walk in, fight it. It grabs you. Barry comes in and flame throws it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in the bathroom scene, which neither of us can remember, Jill doesn't kill the zombie. Hmm. I actually, there's there's a lot more differences to the two playthroughs than I initially realized. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I've just remembered what Rebecca says, because I've written it down. Uh, she walks in as he's being squeezed by the plant 42 and says chris don't die which is oh, he's like, oh okay i won't then yeah thanks thanks for telling 10 me. 4 and then after she does that and k- that kills the root for him and then whatever he says uh we got to the root of the problem yes that's good i like that one mm-hmm. my oh, we'll need to come to that we'll need to maybe we come to it now when we're talking about like favorite little moments of the game my one of my standout highlights is when you're going through the lab and you come you stumble across a picture of Albert Wesker with all his <laughs> scientist mates. AI generated. And it looks like an AI generated mess. I love that picture. Um, and the other thing I like is how like if you read the notes and look at the pictures, how obvious it is that Wesker is the villain. Mm. But the game plays it so straight face. Like like Jill had in my game had literally gone in red about stuff that contained Albert Wesker, looked at a picture of him in the lab with scientists, and then when he sort of reveals himself, she's very surprised. You're so cruel, Wesker. Imagine calling, calling him cruel. He wants to dis, like, extinguish humanity for his own gains. Oh, you meanie. I don't know if this is a silly question or not, but given that there's quite se- there's uh, several dif- differences... Did you have a do you have a preference in the playthrough? Oh, Jill every time. 100%. Is Jill is it because it's easier or, or is like the the reduced inventory slots a game a sort of deal breaker? Yeah. Because other than that, I think maybe there's the the added difficulty to the Chris section might might be a positive if you've played the game a few um, times. Yeah, I I would recommend always doing the Jill playthrough first because then you get to experience the game as as a bit more prepared. Because I, like I say, I did find Chris is quite tough at times when I just had barely any ammo, and as you said, hunters especially were an absolute nightmare, taking loads of shotgun shells. Um, but it's just having having the grenade launcher and having the inventory space. It just it just makes the game less fucky. Like there's less yeah. dicking about. I had like issues with puzzles that involved cranks and stuff where i was just um you know the one where you go into that room and you've got to push a statue kind of in front of the wall and then turn the crank to like make the wall come out then turn it again so the wall goes back yeah, in so you so can then push it the statue the statue yeah yeah i i just ruined it i I think i had to go back and forth like three or four times because i kept forgetting how many slots i needed to have empty and <laughs> oh it's just stupid so um yeah, that that is that really drags the experience down when you're playing as Chris more than anything else. Everything else, I think, is is pretty fine. Um, and, yeah. and like you say, the additional difficulty is quite fun. But yeah, this game, this this is a Jill game for sure. I really like that they do this and that they essentially create two different playthroughs that are sort of if you 
played Resident Evil back in '96 and you loved this game and this was like this was your jam. They create they create enough and have made enough differences to this to warrant multiple playthroughs. And like we're just saying, being able to keep your companions alive versus them dying. Yeah, there's also multiple playthroughs within the same characters. That's really cool. I think that's a really cool addition that I I wasn't aware of coming in, coming into this like play this game and before I started prepping for this podcast. Yeah, that seems to be. And this is you know this could just be like me assuming something completely bollocks but it feels like that's quite an RP, like a jrpg trope that would have carried over from the 16-bit era more than anything else like i don't mm-hmm. think many other types of genre would have been doing things like multiple endings different playthroughs consequences for certain things other than that kind of game so it feels mm-hmm. like quite a revolutionary idea to have these two different playthroughs that you can have i can't think of many other games of this I type revolution era yeah I think revolution is quite a, a good, accurate descriptor there because I guess we, we speak about this a few times on different game podcasts that we've done, but like video games, like live service exists because they want you to keep you involved in that ecosystem. I mean, I got an email today talking about Hitman. They've got a new contract coming out that they want you to go and hunt other people that have guided. I mean, they, a lot of games make their money by keeping you in the ecosystem and yeah. keeping you engaged with this game. And this is actually a very, very early way to make you come back to the game, yeah. which I think is very interesting. And I don't know, maybe there's a lot of tendrils you can see in like the way games have evolved. I think that's one of my favourite things about Resident Evil overall is that there's so many things that we've sort of come across in the games that we've played over the last two years in the various Resident Evil games and you can see the sort of beginnings of an idea that have eventually become bigger things mm. and I think that is probably Resident Evil's legacy isn't it is, yeah. is that um, obviously it's the the sort of granddaddy of the survival horror genre which um, again as we've spoken about is quite funny because I don't find this game scary at all but it probably was back in the day, and and yeah. I do take your point about the dogs and the hunters and stuff like that. They are quite um, scary. I guess I'm, I, I guess it's just standout memories, isn't it? Whereas I'm remembering the schlocky dialogue and the the zombies that aren't really a threat. They're just more of a thing obstacle to get around. I think you play if you play that type if you play this game in 2023, you you are going to notice that as the focal point of what you're experiencing. Yeah. That it, it just sounds stupid and the words don't make very much sense because they're badly translated or localized anyway so that is gonna hit home to you more than this the so-called scares of this game and it, it doesn't help the fact that they like most of the original zombies like the early game zombies you see are just like gray blokes with no hair they look fucking shit like <laughs> early zombies in this game look terrible you compare the zombies in this to the ones in two they're so much better. Like I'm really looking forward to you seeing two, having played disc, and you'll see what a massive leap it was to the second one. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I'm going to. I think it wouldn't. It kind of does. It feels like a bit of an also run for this game, but I feel like we need to. We need to quickly run through the plot. So bear with me, Alex, and I'll quickly go through what this game is about, and then we can have a quick chat about the plot and what we think about it. Okay. So on the 24th of July, 1998, when a series of bizarre murders occur on the outskirts of the fictional town Midwestern of Raccoon City, 
The Rackham City Police Department STARS team are assigned to investigate. After they con after after contact with Bravo team is lost, Alpha Team is sent team in Rebecca's on, obviously. Yes. Uh, Alpha Team is a sent to investigate their disappearance. Alpha Team locates Bravo Team's crashed helicopter and land at the site where they are suddenly attacked by a pack of monstrous dogs. After Alpha Team's helicopter pilot, Brad Vickers, panics and takes off alone. <laughs> Cheers, Brad. <laughs> the remaining members of the team, Chris Redfield, Jill Valentine, Albert Wesker and Barry Burton, are focused are forced focused are forced to seek refuge in a nearby abandoned mansion. Depending on which character the player chooses to assume control of, Chris or Jill, either Barry or Chris are separated from the rest of the team during the chase and do not make it to the make it to the mansion. The team decides to investigate the mansion to search for their missing team member. As the team members explore the mansion, they encounter dangerous creatures roaming the halls. The player character eventually learns that a series of illegal experiments were being undertaken by a clandestine research team under the supervision of biomedical company Umbrella Corporation. The creatures roaming the mansion and its surrounding areas are the results of these experiments, which have exposed the mansion's personnel and various animals and insects to a highly contagious and mutagenic biological agent known as the T-virus. The player may also encounter several members of Bravo Team, including Enrico Marini, who reveals that one of Alpha Team's members is a traitor before being shot and killed by an unseen assailant. It must be Wesker, right? Mm. Eventually, the player character discovers a secret underground laboratory containing Umbrella's experiments. In the lab, the player encounters Wesker, who reveals that he is a double agent working for Umbrella and plans to use the Tyrant, a giant humanoid super soldier, to kill the remaining STARS members. In the ensuing confrontation, Wesker is seemingly killed and the player character defeats the Tyrant. After activating the lab's self-destruct system, the player character reaches the heliport and manages to contact Brad for extraction, at which point the Tyrant may confront them one last time. The game features multiple endings depending on the player's actions at key points over the course of the game. The best ending sees the player character saves their partner, Rebecca Chambers, or for Chris's campaign, or Barry for Jill's, as well as a team member imprisoned in the lab, Jill for Chris's campaign, and vice versa. If at least a part, if at least the partner survives, the tyrant is defeated and the mansion destroyed. Otherwise, the mansion remains intact and the tyrant remains loose in the forest. If the partner or team member is left to permanently die, hmm. Alex, time to bring you back in. What do you think of the story? Um, I think it's interesting how hokey the whole thing comes across, and I'm never sure whether the lore and fandom that surrounds the series now is because of because of the game or in spite of of the first game. Um, Resident Evil has over the years embraced the silly aspects of the game, which I think probably is to its credit. Um, I think personally, yeah. this largely supports the pacing of the game because I think, like when we, t- I'm quite interested in horror as a sort of narrative device. We've spoken about this before, in that, like if if you, if, whether it's movies or games or or TV series, whatever, you have to sort of vary the tension. You, you sort of build up to a moment, you have the climax, and then you come back down again and give them some safety. I think a lot of like, again to. To go back to Alien Isolation, part of what I, f- I find utterly exhausting and probably made me feel quite ill when I was playing the game hmm. is because it's rare that you actually get that second to breathe. Yes. You feel fully safe. Where this game certainly does allow you that 
that time to sort of decompress and feel better before it starts ratcheting up the tension again. Um, I do kind of wish the voice acting was better. Yeah. Though I think the game the game is certainly worse for that, even though it's funny and it's it's entertaining to laugh about. I do wish it was better. But other than that, I think it's quite a, quite well paced, quite quite well created, and the story's good enough to sort of propel you through. What do you think? I agree. I completely agree. Um, I I like what the story is propped up by in terms of the lore. I think it was. It's like a really smart way to deliver this type of That's story. A great way to describe that, yeah, yeah. Where you've Propped got up by great lore, yeah. You've got this evil company that's developing these bioweapons on purpose and like trying to test them out in this area. Mm-hmm. You've got Wesker as a double agent working for them. So rather than just like having you know the George Romero dead people coming out of graves because of there's no more room in hell or whatever it is, and you know there's not even anything in this game that really like tries to dive into that whole zombie like trope of oh my friend's bitten oh he's turning into a zombie the one you know the Mm. one that walking dead does like in every series like three times there's nothing of that in this game and then you've got all these like hideous mutations and things going on and it leads quite nicely into like the opening trilogy of games um the way that the story is told sort of concurrently from different viewpoints in different parts of the city so I actually really, yeah, I really like the story of this. As you say, it is well paced. It's got it's got some decent action packed moments as well. You know, you've got like giant spiders and snakes, and you've got rocket launchers to shoot the tyrant with and stuff like that. It's just let down by a weak, like a really un- like nonsensical script and terrible voice acting. And again, maybe the the remake we will come and look at next time we do this summer of Resi, and we'll think, oh yeah, they told the story in a much better way that's more believable and in, like, mm. entertaining and isn't ruined by limitations of the time or maybe we'll it will think it's worse who knows we'll we'll find out but i'm interested to see how that treats this story with a a fully fresh mind with this in my memory than i am just sort of trying to piece it together in my head can you remember how you felt about the story back in 1996 97 when you would have been playing this game for the first time resident evil is a series that for me was always delivered to me from my friend Chris. So Chris. I I was big Nintendo guy. I had N64, I didn't have a PlayStation really. So he was always the one like showing me Resident Evil and got me into the series and we'd play it together all the time. So I think he kind of laid it onto me and got me interested in why it was so cool. And I did I do remember thinking it was like a really cool idea, really cool story, horror, zombies, all this kind of stuff. So yeah, I think I've always thought it was cool. I, I mm-hmm. probably didn't even think that the acting was as annoying as i do now i probably found it funny back then i don't find it as funny now i think it's becoming grouchier in my old age i was watching the cutscenes in this game and i would love the, to see the live action stuff without all the filtering over the top and well, that's that's in, the, that's in the japanese version yeah so is it because i think we- or anything. wesker must look hilarious because i can even tell in the sort of like filtered out jpeggy pixelated nonsense that wesker is just a really young dude with like he's got like a really bad wig or he's got like that yep. really bad yellow spray in his hair he has got yellow looks, spray yeah. in his hair yeah <laughs> uh, yeah i just i really want to see it really really want to see it maybe go looking for it after this podcast yeah yeah definitely but we'll talk a bit about the development yeah of the game um yeah, let's let's go. So Resident, Resident Evil, I'll try and break this up. It's a bit wordy again, so I apologize for that. Um but I will I'll try and break it up a little bit. Resident Evil was created by a team of staff members who would later go on 
to become part of Capcom production Studio 4. The inspiration for Resident Evil was earlier Capcom horror game, as we've spoken about, Sweet Home, which was released in 1989. Shinji Mikami was commissioned to make a game set in a haunted mansion. Okay, this does link back to what we're talking about, like Sweet Home, and early on the game was intended to be a remake of Sweet Home. The project was was proposed by Sweet Home creator Tokuru Fujiwara. Did I get that? Okay who was Mikami's mentor and served as the game's producer. Fujiwara was the basic, uh, said the basic premise was that he'd be able to do all the things that he wasn't able to include in Sweet Home, which I think is a very tropey thing that video game developers say quite a lot. It's just like, oh, we'll finally be able to utilise the power of X console yeah. and realise what our dream always was for this game. It's mainly, he says, on the graphics front, and that was he was confident that horror games could become a genre in themselves. He entrusted Mikami, who was initially reluctant because he hated being scared, <laughs> which is hilarious, with the um, with the project because he understood what's frightening. Since Capcom no longer had the rights to Sweet Home license, they had to invent a new universe, but the game still adopted many of the elements from Sweet Home. You've never played Sweet Home, right? No, this is not a, a thing either of us have engaged with. Did Sweet Home actually come out in the West? Was I don't think Japan it did. No. Only, yeah. no, we'd have to we'd have to get some dodgy back alley version. I would be astonished if there hasn't been a fan translated patch for Street for Sweet Home. Must be. Yeah. Oh, it's almost it's almost certain. Um, like like we said before, Resident Evil was based on. Sweet Home's gameplay system adopted many elements from the game, including the the limited inventory management, uh, the mansion setting, the puzzles, the emphasis on survival, the door loading screen as as another example, the use of scattered notes and diary entries for storytelling mechanics, multiple endings, depending on how many characters survive, backtracking to previous locations in order to solve puzzles later on, the use of death animations, individual character items such as lock picker lighter, Mm -hmm. Restoring health throughout items scattered across the mansion, the intricate layout of the mansion, and brutally horrific imagery. Basically, this is a modern sort of 1996 take on what Sweet Home was, as we've already discussed. Um, apparently part of the inspiration for the limited ammunition came from the MSX port of the game, a game called Alcazar the Forgotten Fortress. Okay. According to scenario writer uh, Kenichi Iwa- Iwao, um, the idea of having limited ammunition was inspired by the limited amount of supplies in the game's randomised dungeons. Iwao wanted to take more of the elements from the game, such as adding more ways to attack zombies with items such as mines, traps, but was unable due to schedule constraints. That would have been cool. To be able to plant traps for zombies and stuff. Yeah. Even like lay mines for hunters coming across yeah. later in the game would have been quite fun. Yeah. And I guess we saw that to an extent. There were mines in Resident Evil 3, if I remember correctly, back from our... It's a mine launcher, that. yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, Maybe not just shooting that at the zombies, though. So I don't think I used it right. <laughs> I think you supposed to shoot it at the ground. <laughs> just try shooting in the face with it. <laughs> Is any of that news to you, Alex? I assume you knew more of most of that going in. I, I would have read it, I guess, in Old Itchy, but I don't... I, yeah. I don't remember that because I didn't read the first chapter again for this podcast. So, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I guess, yeah, there's not much we can really talk about that. So, I guess that in terms of production, production for the game 
began in 1993 and the game took three years to develop. During the first six months of development, Mikami worked in the game alone, creating concepts, sketches, designing characters and writing hmm. apparently over 40 pages worth of script, which I, seems like not a lot, but actually in 1997 when sort of game story was often an afterthought, and sort of a well, this is ninety three, so yeah, even more so. Yeah, um, oh yeah, I got my dates wrong there. Yeah, so this this probably is quite a quite a moment. Maybe that's something that we've or me I've under underappreciated. I couldn't think there's forty pages worth of script in the game. Like off the top of my head, it doesn't feel like forty pages worth of talking. No, maybe he's doing a lot of. Uh, well, maybe he's writing all those scientist notes and stuff. Yeah. Or he's got a whole backstory for Barry that we can discover when he dies in his memoir. <laughs> yeah, he had to write the itchy tasty thing, didn't he? The classic note itself, yeah. which has that amazing yeah. line in it where it says something about, um, some, uh, what does it say? Itchy, itchy Scott came, ugly face, so killed him. <laughs> <Amazing>. <laughs> classic. As we touched on at the start of the podcast, the project was originally planned for the Super NES mm. before moving development onto the PlayStation in 1994. A man called Koji Oda was working on the Super NES version after having worked on Super Girls and Ghosts in 1991. Oda revealed that the setting was originally more of a hellish place before being changed to a more realistic setting. Oh, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Um Right, so it doesn't jive with with the sweet home stuff, I guess. But yeah, I guess they, you, I guess you would sort of discuss all aspects of this game and change and remove and yeah, yeah. move things back. Yeah, um, apparently, which I, again I think is really interesting. Several of the and and after I read this. I can kind of see it. Um, several of the Resident Evil Mansion's pre-rendered backdrops were inspired by the Overlook Hotel, which is the setting for the 1980 horror film slash Stephen King book, The Shining. Mm, great film. Uh, Mikami also cited that the 1978 Dawn of the Dead was a, a negative inspiration for the game. The game was initially conceived um, as a fully 3D first-person update for, of Sweet Home, influenced by the game's first-person battles, with action and shooting mechanics. A first-person prototype was produced and initially featured supernatural psychological Japanese horror style to Sweet Home, similar to that of Sweet Home, before opting for an American zombie horror style influenced by the George Romero films. I think that is jumped out of my head as I was reading that. Interested to think that the version of this game that you played did have first-person yeah sections in it yeah and it makes me wonder if actually in a weird way you're playing sort of the true original concept in a in a, in a strange backwards way yeah there's every chance that that was like finally realizing their original vision to some extent which is bizarre to think of now yeah <laughs> they were just they just needed to wait for 2006 for the ds to come out and then they could as mikami says fully utilize or is it Someone, one of them, could u- utilize the power of the console to realize his dreams. <laughs> yeah, he made it. <laughs> um, during production, as again, Alex, you've touched on um, during production, Mikami discovered Alone in the Dark, 
1992, which apparently influenced him to adopt a cinematic fixed-view camera system. Mikami said that if it wasn't for Alone in the Dark, Resident Evil would have had a first-person view, as we've discussed. Instead, Mikami was uh, initially reluctant to adapt Alone Alone in the Dark's fixed-view camera system, saying it had an effect on immersion. Hmm. Um, which I guess it's understandable. It, you know, understandable, and it's sort of yeah. I it's get more that. atmospheric than it is immersive, isn't it? Yeah, his feeling was that it, yeah, um, it would make the, the player feel a little bit more detached. Again, this yeah. is this age-old first-person means you feel like the character you're controlling thing over the third person, which I don't necessarily agree with. Yeah, not always. Um, but eventually, he adopted it because the use of the pre-rendered backdrops allowed for a higher level of detail than this fully 3D first-person view prototype, which didn't get along with, so well with the original PlayStation specs. So much for the power of the machine, eh? Yeah. A concept art claimed to be of the original first-person prototype has been available since the 1990s, showing more similarity to Doom rather than Alone in the Dark. This is supposition, I suppose, based on where I read this. Um first-person perspective was not used again in the mainline Resident Evil season until Resident Evil 7 Biohazard in 2017. Again, that's another interesting thing, given that this game originally started life as a first-person game mm. that sort of again closed the loop and come back to that once more yeah it's not it's not like this is not a revelatory moment but it's just something that i think is a little interesting bit of info um a later prototype featured co-op gameplay apparently but this feature was eventually removed as mikami said it was te- uh, it technically wasn't good enough alex how do you think a co-op game like this would work. Do you think one person controls Jill, one person controls Chris, and you just run off? Because do you remember sort of co-op games sort of in their, not nascent days, but in the Xbox 360, the one that jumps to me to my mind is Fable 2, in which you could play co-op, or the Lego games that you could play co-op, and that there's this invisible tether that would join the characters together, which meant you couldn't get too far apart before being brought back. <laughs> yeah. Um um, I wonder how they would have done that. I assume because it's the PlayStation, they would have, you would have had to go the same way. You couldn't go off and do different things. Uh, unless, Again, unless they did split screen, or did it, or did that say then that it, that, that wasn't the plan? Just the info I've got. It just says it just technically wasn't good enough. Right. Um, again, like I, I know I'm sort of jumping on this bandwagon, but Resident Evil Zero again sort yeah. of realizes these things that were they were perhaps trying to do yeah i don't know i I think a co-op game would be interesting i mean i think resident evil zero proves that it can be done and it can be interesting well they they had that desire for that for a long time for resident remember that was an n64 game zero so they they really wanted Mm -hmm. to do this like zapping mechanic where you switch between two characters and maybe maybe that was yeah. something that they really wanted to realize in terms of a cult mechanic obviously there's the outbreak games that we haven't played yet but they're online was that the ones we were thinking about playing and just never quite made it happen yeah we we kind of pivoted knowing we wouldn't be able to spend a lot of time mm-hmm. congregating to play this game together that we would do one and we could play solo but that we will come to that at some point because it's doable on a pc but i assume that based on that it Obviously, you're looking at your own screen because it's online and then you are just running around the same area. So it's effectively like a giant split-screen version. It'd be yeah. interesting to see how that actually works out. And maybe you just get in each other's way and become annoying or whatever because it's 
the actual carp Resident Evil games are very much focused around that. Mm. And obviously, they work better because you because of the over the shoulder view. So yeah, like two carp people around the same like fixed camera angle could look very odd. Yeah. Um. The only sort of info I've got on this that they had, uh, I've been sort of scanning through, trying to see what more info I had on the co-op version of the game. And the only thing that I can see is that the prototype version that apparently was uh, a demo was made uh, at the 1995 something called a V-Jump Festival, which I've never heard of. Me neither. Um, It had active sort of weapon swapping. So you could sort of in real time pass weapons to one another, which I guess would help in terms of inventory management. Yes, again, I I guess that would make things interesting. Yeah. Um, Capcom apparently did not use any motion capture in the game, just unsurprising. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Despite having their own motion capture studio, instead the animators referred to books and videos to study how people, spiders, and other animals encountered in the game moved. Um, I always respect that. Yeah. Like, I know motion capture obviously gets the greatest level of realism, but... I do respect a, a developer just wanting to completely animate something. They still do that um, from time to time. The one that jumps to my mind is Annapurna's recent game. It's Annapurna, I'm sure, Stray, that came out in PS5 and it's oh, recently yeah. come to Xbox. That game is not motion captured. It is entirely mm. animated. Fight, uh, AW Fight Forever is, isn't motion captured either because they want it to be like... No, the, the, do you still play in that ones? game? No. So one thing that jumped up as a little aside jumped onto my news feed last mm. week was that the 30 man battle royale is yeah. coming out yeah is it out, out now, now? should yeah. be out have you tried you've got surely you've tried it come on i haven't yet because i've been watching aw and wembley instead all weekend but um alex get down to that beer shop in your fantastic little town buy yourself a couple beers go home <laughs> smash one of them over your forehead and boot up yeah it needs AW to be done. 30 man battle royale needs to be that done sounds really fun yeah uh just sounds chaotically insane yeah, it's got and it's but it's got the same stuff. It's got the um, you know, the circle moving in and getting smaller and smaller and all that kind of stuff. Apparently, it doesn't even have like grapples in it. It takes that move out of it. It's just like so. Where's it set? I weapons. thought it would be in a ring. I no, thought I, in my head, in my head, it was like a Royal Rumble type idea. That's that's what a friend of mine wanted it to be. But no, this is um, called Stadium Stampede. So it's based off of a real thing that they did during COVID where they had the running of the Jacksonville Jaguars stadium because Tony Khan's dad owns that that football team. So they put this insane match on throughout the stadium. So this is what that is. This is like an actual BR, not a Royal Rumble. This is an actual Battle Royale. I love the idea of being able to party up with your mates and join an online Royal Rumble and just sit and chat over headsets while you either sit and I watch wonder if the that's ever been done. Surely the WWE games must have done that. I can't think of it ever happening. Mm. But yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm hardly fun. a wrestling con- wrestling game connoisseur. So especially if you could, if you could, like, if they sort of Call of Dutyified your character and you could level him up, yeah, and unlock different stuff, and you could make like I don't know, Alex Aldridge, three sixteen, whatever, <laughs> yeah. Classic old Alex um, Kid 316, yeah. Yeah, that would be fun. Um, a 
apparently in pre-production, other characters were conceived for the game. Uh, there was Dewey, who is an African-American man. He was intended to perform a comic relief role because there wasn't enough of that, Alex. They brought that back in fucking Dino Crisis, I think. <laughs> they did. <laughs> While uh, someone called Gelzer, G-E-L-Z-E-R, uh, he was a big cyborg. <laughs> he was... Lucky he's gone. He was How a typical did this game strongman. become as like, grounded as it did? The oh, ideas no, they were having I... were absolutely batshit. Um, apparently, yeah, he was a strongman character, and both were later replaced by Rebecca and Barry, respectively. Thank goodness. <laughs> um, I know. Almost, <laughs> almost all the development was done on silicon graphics hardware using the software program Softimage. Um, that means absolutely nothing to me, but I no. thought it was interesting nonetheless. Yeah. Um, the PlayStation was chosen. That what I what I thought was interesting was the PlayStation was chosen. It's a lead platform because the development team felt it was the most appropriate game in terms of of things such as the amount of polygons they could have on screen. Um, development team had upwards of eighty people working towards the end of the game's development, which probably in nineties, in the nineties, was quite a big development team, right? Yeah, I know it's quite small now, given the hundreds that we've got. Apparently, Capcom were hesitant to port the game to the Sega Saturn because the hardware was not as ideally suited to the game as the PlayStation. And shooting the port would take a long time. A Saturn version was finally unveiled, as we as we said, um, at the April 1997 Tokyo Game Show, at which Capcom also showed a demo for the sequel on PlayStation. So getting a dig in at their own game, really. Yeah. I want to try that Saturn one just to see if it's wrong. Yeah. You don't you don't own it, do you? No, but it's on it's on the list. <laughs> Maybe we'll How go much down is to it? Have you looked it up? It. I've probably got it saved somewhere. Hang on. 45 quid on CEX, 60 pound if you want it mint. So pretty expensive. Yeah. It's annoy it's annoyingly not expensive enough to think I'm never buying that. Yeah. If that makes sense. That's yeah. just about the upper level of I'm gonna end up with that on my shelf. <laughs> For Alex anyway. Yeah, I need to find some video about somebody talking about what if that's terrible or what. Yeah, we're gonna have to go hunting. I'm gonna go hunting after this and then probably text you about it. Um the live action, as we've spoken about most of this, but it's probably worth going over again. The live action full motion video sequences were filmed in Japan with a cast of American actors. All Japanese releases contain the English voice acting with Japanese captions and text. However, Japanese voice performers were also recorded but left unused. Oh. As, M- as Mikami found the quality of the performance inadequate. Christ, that must have been awful. Yeah. Look how low the bar already was. I assume Mikami doesn't speak English and he just didn't know how bad the English yeah. versions were. Um, however, apparently lead programmer Yashirio Anpo later said later said that due to all the development staff being Japanese, they were unaware of the poor localization. That apparently hindered the realism, realism and immersion of the title for the international release, which is one of the reasons for the redub in the 2002 remake. No shit. <laughs> Can you remember how the remake was, redub was received? Were people annoyed? Were people happy about no, it? No, I don't think people would have been annoyed about that. That was probably one of the key things that made everybody love it so much and think it was one mm-hmm. of the best remakes ever done. And still people think that. Fujiwara said the game was originally targeted towards a core audience and he only expected to sell around 200,000 copies before the game went on to sell millions. Mikami said that he was a little worried about how well a horror game would really sell. Anpo said that Capcom did not expect the game to be successful. 
And how wrong they were. How wrong they were. Still having to drag them out now. They are. Um, I've got a bit about the English localization here, but I think, to be honest, you probably covered most of that. Um, to be quick about it, Biohazard was renamed in, well, we've done this in previous podcasts, but not this mm. one. Biohazard was renamed in North American European markets after a man called Chris Kramer, the director of communications at Capcom, pointed out that it would be impossible to trademark in the United States. Among others, the 1992 video game Biohazard Battle and the New York alternative metal band Biohazard Hmm. were already using the name. Capcom ran an internal company contest to find out the new name Resident Evil was chosen since the game takes place in a mansion. Kramer thought the name was super cheesy, but the rest of the market and crew loved it and were ultimately able to convince Mikami that the the name fit. Fit that game anyway. (laughs) It doesn't fit the other ones because none of them are in a mansion. I really like the Japanese name Biohazard. Do you? Do you have a preference of the two? I I just love Resident Evil. I just think it doesn't it doesn't make any sense, but I just love those two Makes words no together. Sense yeah, those two words yeah. together just sing to me. I don't know why, and I don't like that band Biohazard, so that's possibly why I don't like that. Oh, have you listened to them? Oh yeah, they were they were about what? when I was like listening to that kind of music. Never really liked were them. Were like, they? They're like they're like they proper like big? New York hardcore. No, not really. Because I thought I would have heard of them, but I haven't at all. No, they're quite they're quite a sort of mid level band. They were, um, but I saw them on like. Kerrang or Scuzz or whatever the channels were back in the day. P-Rock or something? I don't know. Interesting. The mm. only other bit of info I've got in terms of the localization and stuff was the stuff that we've already talked about with the adding and removing of certain cutscenes and mm. uh, gore and stuff like that. I would... The only thing I want to say, I guess, in terms of that is I think the sort of... The Resident Evil box art is one of the more bizarre box arts I've seen. In yes. video games, yes, it is really, really odd. <laughs> the twisted face of Chris Redfield looks like he's having a stroke. It's, it's really, really bizarre. What's the what's the alternatives to that? Is there a it's Japanese? Just, yeah, I think it's yeah. There are. Let me have a quick look here. There are, but I'm sure it is just the name in various incarnations. Oh, okay, because yeah, this this dual shock director's cut that i've got is weird because it's just like a picture of the stairs in the mansion that's right yeah so it's picture of stairs in the mansion there's um chris redfield there's also the director's cut which is sort of a zombie looking over his shoulder seductively oh yeah 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 yeah. that's obviously supposed to be the first zombie in the game isn't it the old creepy turny mcgill yeah that's the guy that's eating eating kenneth who it says uh when you sort of press on his body it says kenneth has become a shadow of his former self he's had his head ripped off for fuck's sake not an iconic box art maybe it is i don't know iconically bad in my opinion um we spoke about this last week but the reception of the game's got a 91 metacritic uh on ps1 and a 71 on ds the sales combined, I, I, I find this game is a hard game to get the sales figures for, and I couldn't remember what you said last week, but I managed <laughs> to get I got PS1 sales only at 5.08 million units. Um, and it was the first game to be dubbed Survival Horror, which I think is, if anything, it, like it is as good as it is, it's also important because it started an entire genre of itself. Um, well, the only other thing I've really got to do is I've got a quick 
run through of the different levels. So, like the sort of main areas of the game. So, I, I looked up a couple guides for this. Five point zero eight million is exactly what I had, by the way, for the excellent from Nailed the it. Capcom official uh, platinum list thing. Yeah, so I went through a few guides to sort of try and I was trying to like break the game up into different sections and different levels to discuss and see if there was anything after we'd gone through the podcast to see that we'd maybe want to want to touch on. So we've got entering the mansion, escaping the mansion in the courtyard, subject plant forty two, the hunters underground, and the bioweapon. Um, entering the mansion to me is always it's the bit that everybody sees right it's the most iconic yeah. bit where you're sort of discovering it and it's it's probably i don't know of those bits i sort of and this is unfair because i just rattled it off really quickly and then asked you a question after you've probably forgotten them but in terms of like areas of the game what standout parts have you got is there any aspects of the game you didn't enjoy like what are your favorite memories of it i don't think i didn't enjoy any part of it but i certainly cannot help but prefer the mansion to everywhere else the underground bit i think is probably the weakest part where you're going in and out of that boulder bit yeah although i do enjoy the like turny thing where you can turn the walls and walk through it but um that bit i think i said i don't know if you were watching but when i was streaming it that gives me certain lara croft vibes mm. and it's just the the dirty polygonal textures as you're running through a cave yeah, that i totally. was getting from that yeah I, I completely agree it looks like tomb raider spot on i like i don't mind the lab i think that's a nice it sort uh-huh. of brings the game back into some interesting stuff with the the uh the computer that you've got to use the password on to get in and open some of the sure. doors and things like that those horrible enemies on the ceiling that swipe down at you Oh yeah, not even sure what they're called or what they are. They're sort of like no. they're not spiders, but they have multiple legs. And yeah, I hate them. But yeah, the, the mansion is just iconic, and it's actually really well laid out and put together for like a, such an early realization of this type of model that they were going to use moving forward. As you said, yeah. the, puzz- the puzzles are not crazy obtuse. They're mainly just putting things in other things. Um. So yeah, uh, that that's obviously the stand the standout, especially the earlier parts of it as well. You're first coming up against zombies, and you're first coming up against dogs through the windows and crows, like that room when you've got to do the puzzle with the crows kind of all round. That is proper creepy. You got to press mm-hmm. pictures of like that that little boy that then goes into an old man, which I felt quite oh, funny yeah. when it said the second to last one is like a tired middle aged man or something. It's like, all right, calm down. I don't understand why it, certain periods throughout this game they like to throw a lot of crows at you. It doesn't really mm. make sense. Like, yeah. can the crows smell the T virus? Like, <laughs> like that's almost sort of like supernatural. Like, it reminds me of a witch or something like that. Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, yeah. I guess it goes back to that haunted mansion type type idea with the supernatural rather than the sci fi. I guess that it's going for. Yeah, I guess they probably just thought like, what what else would you have in a forest? I don't know, birds. Let's put them in an enclosed room. How did they get there? How did they leave? Why are they not dead? Yeah, how did they contract the T virus? As you say, unless there's some notes that we've missed where someone talks about feeding it to the birds or something. I don't know where the spiders coming from. Why are they so massive but the birds aren't? My favorite, my favorite aspect and. In- Almost any Resident Evil game without fail is sort of the mansion police station section. Um, I always sort of 
like it less when it goes underground towards yeah. the inevitable lab that you find. And the self-destruction. And I don't know why, because, yeah, self-destruct, because they're, they're, it's present in all, all the games, so it's not like it's an unusual thing to have. But, yeah, I just, I love the idea of the, and again, I, I was going to I was going to say, right, David, you're not going to talk about this because you talk about it in every bloody Resident Evil podcast, but I love the idea when the environment becomes almost a character in its own right. Yeah, yeah. And the the backtracking that this game forces you to do sort of forces you against your will, whether you want to or not, maybe not against your will, but it forces you to sort of learn the layout of the mansion. And like when you, it gets to the, there's times I didn't, but for the most part you get to points in this game where it's like, oh, I need to go there and you know exactly where you're going and you almost don't need the map. Yeah. I love, I love that about Me these too. games. Um, it was part of the what made me fall in love with Dead Space back in the day, even though in hindsight it wasn't as open as I thought it was. Yeah, but um, yeah, it just sort of made the the um, the the place that you were existing in its own thing. That was that was part of the game's atmosphere and and stuff like that. Is probably my favourite thing about it. Um, Completely agree. It becomes like a strategic element to the game, added with like the item yeah. management and like yeah, learning the layouts. And I think there's a there is an argument to be had that historically from this first game till right up to now, Resident Evil games do continue to fall into a trap of creating such engrossing and stellar opening areas of their mm-hmm. games that then always seem to sort of lose a bit of steam or drop off a little bit as they go forward. You've got, as you said, the mansion, then the police station. Resident Evil 4, you've got the village before you then start going off towards castles and all that other stuff. You've got Resident Evil 7 with the Baker House, which then changes into that terrible shit bit later on. Resident Evil Village, the village versus, again, the castle bits later on. So they, they keep doing it. They keep having these great iconic settings that then, as you move out of them, become a little bit more... Yeah, they lose just lose steam on their way to these eventual laboratories or whatever. How do you feel about the idea that obviously this is a made by a Japanese developer and Japanese publisher, but they're shooting for an American style of horror? And we've we've spoken about this both off of podcast and on podcast over the years that the Japanese are really famous for creating quite effective psychological horror in their own right and that if you're looking for horror a lot of pe- a lot of people will go to the japanese for something that is really quite unsettling mm. and i find it interesting that the japanese have created a series and sort of shied away from doing the classic japanese stuff do you think obviously the game would be very different if they tried to do a more classically japanese horror game um do you think better or worse or is that an unfair question because it's just an unknown i guess that is a really good question, and I, I, I yeah, I, I guess w- the closest we can get to an answer for that is probably something like the Fatal Frame games or Project Zero, mm-hmm. as we were forced to mm-hmm. call them in this country, or something like. I mean, Silent Hill probably goes to, more towards the psychological aspect of it, whereas this is just yeah. straight up like you know, Western influenced gore and monsters. And I like that that's its place in in the horror genre of video games. That it, it sort of mm-hmm. opened itself up with this this element of horror, and it's stuck to that. Wherever the games have gone off in different different aspects of it, I guess the most the more 
recent games, especially seven and eight, have allowed them to sort of stretch their legs and look into different aspects of what yes. horror is. Yeah. Again, largely sticking to sort of Western horror, but there are bits like I think that probably that certainly this eight that or is it seven or eight? I can I always get those two mixed up. But the but the baby section that's following you about that's probably oh more yeah eight yeah Japanese than British uh, British uh, sort of Western European mm. American yeah yeah that definitely delves in- more towards that side of it yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess they try to maybe do that in in seven with the little girl. I mean, that's a bit of a trope of Japanese horror these days, isn't it? Like a yeah. spooky little girl, but that um, Evelyn or whatever her name is, who has all these psychic yeah. powers. That's yeah, a very Japanese yeah. type of horror. Yeah, that's a great shout. There's the what about the weapons and enemies? What, what do you think? Is there any enemies? Like, I guess, like for me, the the one, the one that sticks out is a hunter because the first time I encountered a hunter, I bet he basically ran up to me and took my head clean off and said, like, "Oh, these these are like a different level of danger from the from the standard zombies." And yeah, it's a very the, funny death scene as well, where it's just like her lying, like t posing with no head. Yeah, so and it just sort of spins the camera around over the top of it. It's great. And then the snake as well. He's Snake's quite dumb, he's quite intimidating. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's intimidating in the fact that he's in insofar as he's I find in my experience anyway, he was dangerous. Mm. Um But you're right, he is he is a bit silly. He just also doesn't really fit to me with the rest of the what's going on in the mansion. No. Where does he come from? But yeah, like the the dog I probably the, the classic for me is the enemies with the are the dogs and the and the hunters. Like you say, the, yeah. the final enemy is a joke if you've got a magnum. Like three yeah. shots and he's dead. I was it's so surprised. Bizarrely bad. Even with Chris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they um, definitely never yeah. made that mistake again, did they? Every other game since then just got some absolute unit after you, whereas this one was just unit with, with a glowing pustule that you've got to shoot. Usually, yeah, yeah. The weapons for me, I don't know if I, I don't know if you would agree with this, but and it, it, it's probably it's it's certainly just a personal preference thing. But I love a shotgun in a game. Mm. I just love a shotgun, and the shot. This is a good shotgun. It is a very you get good, good shotgun. You get bad shotguns. This is a this is a good shotgun. Do you Definitely. have a favourite weapon that you would sort of go to? Or is it just what you had available? I, I was surprised actually playing the dual game to realise how much ammo they gave you for that. Again, that's yeah, good, I guess because Barry's coming in, dropping stuff off, and you, you I didn't expect it. when Because obviously on the DS version, they called it Bazooka. So I was confused at first what I was even going to put in it. And then you're getting like flame rounds and acid rounds and explosive rounds. So that's that's something I would have associated with like later Resident Evil games, yeah. especially like three. I forgot that completely this was in the original game, and that was quite a lot of cool variety to use with that. So I I really enjoyed the grenade launcher, but the Magnum's cool too. When you actually you were using it at the end, weren't you? Because you basically yeah. ran out of everything else. So you just that's all you took with you for the final boss. And as you were running out, you're just one shotting all the zombies with Magnum headshots. Yeah, well, that's I said awesome. to you at some point. I played a lot of Resident Evil games now, and I keep like sort of hoarding the Magnum oh, to the so point I, I never use it. Yeah, and I was like, no, I'm I'm using it this time. And yeah, it was yeah. just fun. It's like one shot in zombies, and then just running off like a baller. Yeah. You know what? That's what my last the last question I've got for you is: What's the difference to the ending? So I remember the Barry ending because uh, Wesker's like, oh, I've I've got his children and his family that I'm going to kill if he doesn't do what I say. What do they do with Rebecca? She just has a go at Wesker, and then he shoots her. I think. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he does. She survives, but he shoots her, I think. And then she sort of comes back later on. She's like, hey, Chris. 
I guess maybe that's that's the point where she potentially dies if you didn't do the whatever, or is that a hunter bit? I yeah. can't remember now. But yeah, she's just there with the end with him, and then you go rescue Jill, and it's basically the same thing, apart from the fact that as you're getting onto the helicopter, um, the tyrant bursts through the floor of the helipad, and then you have to fight him again. But again, he's he's not that difficult. You shoot him a few times with a magnum, and then somebody drops a rocket launcher for you, and you shoot him clean in half. Good fun, though. Yeah. Alex? Have you any other thoughts that you don't think we've covered over the course of this podcast? Because I've realised we're we are chugging on now in terms of time. <laughs> yeah, I think we've done a. I think you've done a great job there. I think we've covered it inside and out. Just a. I think this overall sort of closing thoughts for me. Um, really good game that I enjoyed more than I thought I would. Yeah, it is shown its age in some ways, but is certainly still playable in many ways more playable than I expected it to be. Good game, totally. And I just implore everybody out there to try the DS version if you can get hold of it because it's Aye. revelatory. It's fantastic. What's the box art like? Or did Ooh. you get a download? I'll go get it. Hang on. This is a little, a little sneak peek. If you're going to watch the video version of this podcast, I want to see what this looks like. Very interested to. It's not amazing. Check this out. It's got oh, your, no? it's got your old mate on it. Oh, that's not bad. That's okay. So I, I think that's better than the PS1. I really don't like that PS1 box. I'm really not a fan. No, it's, that's pretty bad. They could also silence. do wireless co-op and versus with up to four players on this, but obviously I can't do that now. Well, if I get myself a 3DS, we can. Oh, my God. If it's still if they've still got the servers up for it, that'd be amazing. It won't just do local, will it? Like, Oh, it yeah, it probably does, actually. What am I talking about? Wireless DS multi-card play. Yeah, you're right. Sorry, yeah, it's between. It's between yes, the it might happen. It might happen. Alex, Resident Evil is done. It is dusted. It is in the bag. It is in the can. The can is canned up and on the shelf for purchase. What is next <coughs> on their winners? You docket of goodness. On the docket of goodness next is our celebration of 25 years of Metal Gear Solid. Okay, I can't wait. That I also cannot wait to play, as I don't believe I've ever beaten the PlayStation version. Have I've you not? I've never played the GameCube remake, and then I played two. I think I might even play three as well, if we have enough time. I was going to say, what's the difference between... Oh, massive remake, differences. But, well, you know, yeah, okay. Yeah. I've definitely played... I, I've definitely... It's one, yeah, I've definitely played and completed Resident Evil 1 and PS1. You mean Metal Gear Solid? Yeah, what did I say? Resident Evil 1. Yeah, I've done that, but not on PS1. <laughs> We've just done it. Yeah, you just did. Yeah, Metal Gear Solid 1 on PS1. I can remember, yeah, Revolver Ocelot, the Mac. There's a there's a boss fight in this game, Alex, with a man on rollerblades. So hmm. what more do you want? What more indeed? And you get pissed on, so you can sneak past Sniper Wolf, right? You do pissed indeed. Pissed on by dogs. So... Buzzing for it. It's going to be a get pissed on. It's going to be a great... It's going to be a great episode. 25 years. I can't wait. What version are you playing? The one that's on PS3 slash Vita from the Legacy Collection. You've got the good version. You've got the good version. Yeah. I'm going to have to find a dodgy copy because I'm buy. I'm going to buy that remake thing, that collection, mm-hmm. 
collection part one that's coming out. So oh yeah, I ain't buying that game twice. No. So I'm going to get a dodgy version and then buy it again later. Yeah, I, th- I have it. got the PS1 version. I've just never finished it. Oh, I can't wait. It's going to be fun. It's going to be awesome. But I suppose that brings us to the end of another classic episode of the Winners You podcast. If you like what you heard, and even if you didn't, why not give our numbers a bump by subscribing to our podcast feed of your choice? And if or if you prefer your podcast in a visual format, you can head over to our YouTube channel for a winner and search for a Winners You podcast where you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. If the podcast isn't enough for your dose of a winner is you chattery, you can also follow us on the website, formerly known as Twitter, at winner is you pod, and you can even send us an email to tell us how wrong we are about our gaming opinions by writing to a winner is you pod at gmail.com. Alex and I also have accounts on used to be Twitter, at David Smiley and at Super Thrillix, respectively. Any housekeeping, Alex, before we get out of here? What are you doing for your next? Oh, it's not changed since the last one. Oh, is it not? So it's still, still party games. We haven't done that. We've recorded that tomorrow, as of time of recording this. So I don't think you had more house party games time. last time we we recorded. Still haven't yet. You haven't. Still haven't. I'm still not sure. It's probably going to be a Mario Kart, but it feels like it's not the right kind of party game. I don't know. I don't know if I care anymore. <laughs> He's a broken man. I don't think there are many good party games that are actual party games, unless it's like Mount Your Friends or something. I don't know. Mount Your Friends is a good one. Yeah, that's a great it's one. Great in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It cost me like £1.20 that game. It cost me nothing because it's on my Steam now because you have it. <laughs> well, there we go. And on that bombshell, I've been David, he's been Alex, and we have been the winners you. And I'm out. Keep gaming. <laughs>